from the tech side, I think there's huge frustration. Why can't we get hold of this data? Why can't we do things quicker? We want to do good stuff. On today's show, we're talking to Natalie Banner from Welcome Trust, as that clip just highlighted. Welcome to Tech Talks. I'm David Savage. This is the twice-weekly technology podcast discussing the key themes and trends across the industry through interviews with leaders. So whether you're looking for some peer-to-peer insight or you're just an enthusiast trying to find out a little bit more about what's going on, this is the podcast for you. Hello again, Sean. Hello again. This is actually in person. I know. It that's, makes a change. That's like a not, first in the, in the last couple of weeks. I'm not waiting for my Wi-Fi to catch up with your voice, so <laughs> it's, it's a bit better. <laughs> I know. I'm finally now. You're 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 around. Jack's around. So many recording options, but it's oh, pleasure I to have you on the show. Like, oh, yeah. Wow. I saw Jack earlier, and it like nah, Sean's yeah, out. Yeah, too much. <laughs> you gotta make yourself a little bit nice. I'm, I know. I like that. I made the cut. So, um, yeah, how you been? Yeah. Are you feeling all right now? I am, I am. Because I'm, I'm not, I'm feeling ropey. Ah, uh, so we've swapped round. Yeah, yeah, I can go to sleep without, like, four pillows now. So I think yeah. we're, in, we're, we're coming out the other side. <laughs> Why is it that it's really nice weather, and yet uh, apparently mm. I'm not alone. There's a load of people who feel rubbish at the minute. I don't know if there's any scientific basis in this, but people always say to me that the change in, in like, the quick change in weather and temperatures and it's stuff nice. can have an impact, uh, because it's going, you know, the temperatures are going up and down, like, like a bloody yo-yo. I suppose the, the nights and the mornings are cooler, although someone was like, oh yeah, I had to put my puffer jacket on this one, someone in the office, I was like, really? I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, anyway, I don't trust their opinion on the weather or the temperature. Uh-huh. Trust is the byword for today. Yeah, it, it's all about trust, isn't it? Yeah. We'll hand over to the interview, let Natalie stick the context around this for you, and then, yeah, there's, a plen- there's plenty to discuss uh, with Sean and myself afterwards. Stay tuned as well. Obviously, later in the show, we'll have a bit of tech news. But here is Natalie, and yeah, this is all about trust and data. So today, we are talking to Dr. Natalie Banner, let me, I'll make sure this is the right title externally, but your, your, your email signature says Understanding Patient Data Lead here at the Wellcome Trust. Is that the right external title? Yes. Uh, so I lead an initiative called Understanding Patient Data that is hosted within the Wellcome Trust. Right. So if someone is not familiar, do you mind just very quickly setting the scene for us? Who are the Wellcome Trust and beyond just the title, what you actually do. Sure. So uh, Welcome is a global charitable foundation. Uh, It has a mission to improve health, and that's primarily through funding health and medical research. Uh, It's the second largest charity in the world after the Gates Foundation. Um, Welcome mostly funds in the UK, but also has significant uh, research projects going on in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. I suppose the first thing that kind of jumps to mind when, when we're talking about a global research unit uh, and especially one that's going to be heavily built on data is around how 
how you get through to people that, that, that how their data is actually being used because you're going to be collecting a lot of personal information. Yeah, so understanding patient data as a, as a sort of unit within uh, sort of hosted by Welcome, um, we focus very much on health records that are routinely collected. So you go to your GP, you go to hospital, mm. data about you is being collected all the time as part of your health record. And of course, your clinicians need that for your own care. Yes. But there's also a huge amount of potential to be able to use the data that's contained within health records for purposes other than care, particularly for research, and that's why Welcome is interested in this particular area. Um, and the challenge here is that, of course, people don't really know that this, this stuff that's in your health record that is very personal to you um, might be able to be used for other things. Um, and particularly when it comes to emerging and exciting data-driven technologies, obviously a huge amount of that is built on the availability and accessibility of data. Even though I know a fair amount about technology, I know that my data is being collected but I've never seen a, a point really where someone goes, hey, do you want to give your data to this organisation or this organisation? And I know that my data may well be being used by an insurance firm or a financial firm where I might go, hang on a minute, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that. And I don't know whether it's compromising some of my civil liberties versus, hey, there's this medical research organisation that's trying to cure cancer, which I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Exactly. No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there with kind of where that what the challenges are and what the issues are. And the, the big question for us and the reason that understanding patient data exists is our focus is very much on the stuff that is being collected for your care anyway. So you're not necessarily actively consenting, for example, to participate in a research study like you would do if you did, say, a clinical trial. Mm. But this is stuff that's being collected anyway. And there are really clear-cut rules in place around what happens to this data, where it goes, who's responsible for it, what the rules are, who can access it, what the safeguards are, what the risks are. Mm. Um, and they're actually quite clear. But the problem is, this stuff is really technical and for most people, it's quite dry. It's not something that they're necessarily going to be interested in or engaged in until the point at which they see a headline that says something really scary about their health record or their data. So our role is to sort of try and occupy that space to demystify the way that health data is collected and used, create a bit more of a coherent narrative around it, uh, try and use language that isn't full of, uh, full of jargon, because it's a very jargon-heavy space, um, and actually say, OK, here's what the rule are, here's how the data is managed and used, these are some of the fantastic benefits we think we can get from the use of the data, for example, driving you know, healthcare mm. research, uh, creating better um, tools for diagnosis, also planning NHS services and all that kind of operational stuff. Um, but also, uh, there may be some risks that you might not feel comfortable with. And if that's the case, then here are the choices that you have in relation to where you can say, no, I don't want my health records to be used in that way. How do you get that message out, though? Because, I mean, I remember a, a while back, I, I just, out of pure curiosity, went onto the te technology pages of the, of the Daily Mail, and there was a ridiculous headline that basically said something along the lines of, your, your car knows where you've been shopping. Mm -hmm. We all know where we've been shopping. Mm -hmm. We use credit cards. Mm -hmm. we, we leave digital trails everywhere. Kind of sensationalised, scary stuff that, to people who don't really understand technology, might well make them a little bit concern distance themselves from the potential benefits of tech and then there's welcome trust that doesn't have the mouthpiece that mass media has and is trying to put out a positive narrative and i'm just wondering how, how you kind of cut through against that uh it's a challenge definitely and i think one of the ways that we try and do it as understanding patient data is to 
be open and honest about the potential risks. And as mm. I say, this is very much about the routinely collected health record data. It may well be that data is being collected through your loyalty cards, through your apps, through other things that you use. But our focus is on the stuff that actually has been has been collected in the context of a confidential relationship between a doctor and a patient. And it's that's why it's particularly sensitive and particularly important to get it right. But you're, you're, you're right about the narrative and the challenge we have there. Um, and I think being open about uh, what actually happens in practice and trying to um, come up with really nice, resonant, engaging examples of the benefits of using this, this kind of data is really helpful because from a lot of the public attitudes research that's been done, either that we've done ourselves or that we've collated from other sources, indicates that people are generally open to and optimistic about the idea of being able to use data for new technologies and particularly in healthcare. Um, but they have certain red lines and there's certain mm. things that they're deeply unhappy about the idea of. But when you talk about it at a really abstract level, like research or service planning, it doesn't really mean much. If you bring it down to really specific concrete examples of where data has been used, for example, to develop a new technology or a new product, that is having a, a clear impact on a healthcare service, whether it's helping with waiting times or you know doing something to really advance and improve and speed up diagnosis. That's where people go, oh, right, well, that sounds fantastic. Why aren't we doing more of that? Mm. And you move people from this idea of, of kind of scepticism and caution where they start off going, hang on a minute, I knew nothing about that. What's happening to my data? I had no idea. I don't like it. To, oh, okay, well, I can see that there are some really great benefits that come from this. Uh, but you have to also be aware of the risks and be able to kind of make those choices individually. So essentially, our narrative is around openness, transparency and honesty. And that's not necessarily something that comes naturally to, uh, I think, particularly some players in the tech world. When you talk about, um, I suppose, putting meaning and, and kind of an output of, of how you're using data, that, that's the bit that builds trust when yep. you can kind of give context and give meaning. But at a very basic level, do the majority of people really even understand data no absolutely i think it's fair because we're talking here kind of going on about oh yeah they understand how their data is being used but most people if you kind of start talking to them about their data at their gp might be like what on earth are you going on about yes i think that's absolutely true and i think it's certainly true for me i I have very little grasp of actually what my data is and you know what it looks like in the first place which means that when you start talking about the potential for using patient records people immediately think there's like an entire massive like manila envelope with everything that's ever happened in their whole medical history being part passed on to some anonymous weird third party that they don't know about. So a big part of it is saying, well, actually, what kind of data are we talking about here? And we we do a lot of work to, uh, particularly with kind of public attitudes and dialogue work, to explore what people understand by data, what intuitively they grasp when you say the word data, and then work from there to say, okay, well, if this is what you kind of understand by the terms to to do with data, then here's how we, we build on that and start from where they're coming from, rather than talking jargon and tech and so on, which frankly, you know, just disengages people from yeah. the outset. Your role, you obviously work within a global organisation. What's your remit? Is it is it a national remit or global as well? Or? So understanding patient data, we, we have a slightly odd relationship because we, we're hosted within Welcome, but we're sort of technically independent of it. We have an independent right. governance structure um, with external uh, stakeholders as well that kind of help steer our direction. Um, so our remit is the UK, uh, but we're really interested in um, exploring whether the model that we've created around how you talk to people and 
and engage with them about patient data and the potential use, particularly mm. for technology, could be interesting and applicable to other contexts. So we're talking to um, some EU member states. I've had conversations in uh, Copenhagen and Australia, a couple in the States. You know, people are interested in this idea of really building from the ground up something about trustworthy data use and governance and um accountability and transparency that we're trying to develop with understanding patient data so yeah our remit is the uk partly because historically uh, we've got this really wrong uh, in this country before and there have been really big public scandals about uh, the use particularly of health records and so our focus is very much on trying to get the system right yeah look I, I mean forgive me this might i might get a whole load of uh makes oh, sorry i might make a whole load of inaccurate statements here but i, I always believed I think it's still the case, correct me if I'm wrong, that patient data within the UK can't leave the UK. That's not necessarily true. Because right, I was interested, because obviously you're working in kind of sub-Saharan Africa, and mm. again, being able to compare those data sets and, and find the patterns is, is where you're going to be able to make the biggest breakthrough. So I was just wondering kind of how, how you do that in a way that at the same time meets regulation. Yeah, so absolutely. So a, a really nice example there is genomics. You right. cannot do genomic, genetic and genomic research on a small scale because the signals that you're looking for in the data are really, really tiny. And you know, it's huge numbers of different variables when you're looking for a particular uh, deter genetic determinant of a, of a condition or, or a you know, risk factor for a certain condition. So genomics has to be done on a global scale. You cannot have that, particularly if you're looking at say rare diseases, for example, mm. you might only have a few people in a single country that have a disease. It's, you're going to really struggle to do research, meaningful research there, if you cannot share data among different countries. Um, so I think for, for that kind of research, you absolutely need that, that global level. Um, I suppose in answer to your question about patient data in the UK, it kind of depends what you mean by patient data. Right. So for the vast majority of research that's done, it doesn't need anything that's identifiable in it. Um, and actually, even though it may well still count as personal data under GDPR, because it's a really, really tricky technical area to figure out if something counts as personal data or not. Um, for, for the vast majority of cases, you won't need anything that could identify an individual. Uh, but there are rules and regulations, particularly around health data, in place about where that data can go, who can use it, what the controls, contracts, data security arrangements are about it. But they're not necessarily you know, by geography, for example. So in your role, out of interest, what are the most significant partnerships for you? Is it with the NHS? Is it with maybe someone like the Open Data Institute? Is it with other health tech firms? Where where are you kind of really seeing the, the, the progress being made? So we see our role very much as kind of being a conduit for people and helping to convene people across different sectors. Mm. So we work very closely with NHS England and NHS X and the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, but we also have really fascinating conversations with people like the Open Data Institute, mm. the Ada Lovelace Institute, other people who are working in kind of health tech and data uses and the thing that we we feel that we can do quite well is is draw people together who don't necessarily speak the same language and try and help create conversations where people can actually realize they're talking about the same thing also a tech um, entrepreneur and, uh, exactly. and, a, and an H, nhs trust exactly and not necessarily brokering those but providing the kind of um, here, here are some of the things that you need to consider if you want to work in um, in using patient data. Here are some things you need to consider if you want to be seen as you know, trustworthy and, uh, and a kind of a responsible um, advocate for the develop ethical development of, of technologies that's based on patient data. Now you are a doctor. 
Yes, but I'm not a medical doctor. No, no, I was, I was going to say, I was going to ask what your doctorate is in. Uh, my doctorate is in the philosophy of psychiatry. Right. Academia seems to be having a bigger <laughs> and bigger say in the technology industry. Mm. How's that working out culturally? Because that, that, that is two very different cultures coming together. Very, very different cultures. And actually, I think if you throw the health system in there as well, that's a third culture that operates mm. in an incredibly different way. You know, if you take the sort of tech approach of the... I know I know that this is a bit of an old uh, way of, 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 of characterising it, but the sort of move fast and break things, you put that in a healthcare system where moving fast and breaking things will kill people and then you have academia which is very much about the kind of robust uh, evidence base and building up you know kind of relatively slowly a body of evidence about you know effectiveness of um, of, of interventions and of, of products and services and, and so on um, you know fully uh, in the context of a peer review environment you have three very 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 different uh, cultures that I don't think have figured out how to work together yet an interesting um, contrast is with the farmer industry for example where mm -hmm. there are clear rules ways of working um, governance structures that have been in place for a long time over farmer involvement in health and academic involvement in clinical trials for example um, and that's sort of been quite well established over a number of years and it feels like people sort of understand within the system uh, what those relationships are tech comes along and completely blows all that out of the water because again it's a very different way of thinking and i think we're at a really interesting juncture now where those different cultures are having to suss each other out a little bit in the moment there's not a lot of trust you're you're at an interesting crossroads but you're at one that i imagine an increasing amount of people with your kind of skill set and background are at so just last question from, from personal insight, what's been the most challenging? Getting people from the academic community on board and to, to think differently or getting tech to, to behave differently or, or is it the medical community that have been hardest to shift the dialogue? Oh, that is a tough question. They've all had their own challenges in slightly different ways. I think from the academic side, there has there, there's been a there's been slow recognition of the fact that they need to work harder to make the case for the public benefit of their work. Mm -hmm. So knowledge for knowledge's sakes is, is wonderful, uh, but it's not going to help improve the kind of trust and uh, the, the perception of kind of trustworthiness that people will have in the research that, that you're undertaking as, as an academic. And I think that is a big mindset shift. From the tech side, I think there's huge frustration. Why can't we get hold of this data? Why can't we do things quicker? We want to do good stuff. Let us at it. And sort of saying, hang on a minute, this is this is really sensitive, difficult stuff to manage here. And you just have to maybe take a step back and realise the bigger picture. The health service has got to run. It's also got to absolutely operate on the basis of trust. If you lose trust between a doctor and a patient, the whole health service collapses. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, understanding those conditions of trustworthiness on the, on the tech side, I think, has been has been challenging. And on the health system side, um, I think it's just the, it's the adaptation to new ways of thinking. Um, NHS has been notoriously slow to adopt technology. I think that's shifting. But there are very, very entrenched ways of working. Um, and again, perceptions that we don't necessarily need to tell the public what we're doing with their data because they should trust us because we're doctors. Um, and I think that is, is, is taking a little bit of a shift. So each challenging in their own way, which I appreciate is not a very succinct answer to your question. No, but it's, uh, it's an honest and interesting. <laughs> Look, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much, Dan. This doesn't necessarily reassure me. I mean, in as much as it's brilliant that you've got someone like Natalie, who's passionate and clearly not understands this space as much as anyone can, great. But 
you kind of feel like this is a real slog for the industry. Yeah, I think especially when she said that um, it's tricky to figure out what classes as personal data and what doesn't. And, and even they don't really know mm. where... Um, you know, what falls under GDPR and what doesn't. That's quite scary um, because if, if people kind of working with it, they still figuring that out. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's no surprise that, that people are skeptic, skeptical because um, there's, there's a lack of under, like cohesion and understanding um, even within the experts. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked that she described it as, as even for her being difficult to grasp. And actually what they need to do is to understand what people understand and build on that. And if that's not a lot, well, that's where we are. And throwing around jargon and talking about data and building trust uh, without giving any real context isn't going to get us anywhere. Yeah, she was definitely right that... um... You know, the work they're doing with the understanding patient data is really important because, you know, nobody reads T's and C's. Nobody reads pages and pages of what you're doing with your data unless you're really kind of um, interested in in knowing that. Like, it, it's just something that you're just not going to, you mm. know, it just takes so much time and you're not really sure what it's even saying or what it really means because it's just all a bit vague. Um, so, like she said, it's really important for people to know what it's actually being used for. Um, because I feel, you know, if people know, I, I doubt anybody would have an issue knowing that their health records could, you know, reduce waiting times and help with diagnoses and and just kind of benefit them and and their family and friends and other people. But I think it's the lack of that opt in mm-hmm. and the and the transparency that that throws people off a bit because it's only when we listen to these kind of things do we know how much and what actually of our data is being used. Um, so I think it's not that people would have an issue with it being used, it's that we don't feel like we really understand how much and why and where it's going. Um, and, or even this this is what it's done. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't... It's, it is quite an abstract thing to get your head around data. Mm. What is my data? What, you mm. know, fine. But if someone said your data, even if you don't quite understand it, and even Natalie says it's really technical and dry, it will disengage mm. people. But if, you know, to your point, waiting times, if someone said yeah. data has reduced waiting times by 30%, we're able yeah. to see this many more people, that's the benefit it's had. Do you want to give us your data? So I might then go, okay, reduced waiting times by 30%, yes. That's the thing, isn't it? Because uh, I think it's quite easy to say that people that are are sceptical or uh, sensationalist about it are just, they don't really understand. But it's like you're asking people to to give up what to them feels important, you know, their privacy and their private information, and they don't really know why. Um, And the only examples they're given of what it actually leads to tend to be negative. Yeah, exactly. Um, And... Also, the, yeah, the, the idea of anonymity... An, oh, I can't say that word. Anonymity. Yeah, I can never say it. <laughs> anonymity. Um, <laughs> it's just not really communicated a lot. So, so yeah, there's just that, that constant like um, lack of understanding and, and the knowledge of you don't know how, you know, in what data could you be recognised in and what data couldn't you be. Um, and also, you know, how do we distinguish between data that is doing in good, like health records, and then data that's just being used to sell to us or, mm. um, 
yeah, just sell to us. So oh, it look, is. We, we and that's also, what people get put off by, I think. We also know every single election that comes around in this country, the NHS is up there as one of the priorities. People in this country mm. value the NHS. Mm. Everyone knows that it's it's struggling, but no one wants it to fail. Mm. And if someone was to say, you know what? This data can help planning services and processes and help fix the NHS, this big unwieldy thing, then they get on board. I'm sure they would get on board. Yeah, and I think we need to um, also, along with with everything that Natalie mentioned, is, is kind of challenge the idea that, that all data is necessarily important to be private to us because I think it's it's the language that's used, you know, like your data and your privacy. It's It, it makes people very uh, cautious of giving out anything. So I think it would be good to challenge, you know, is it important to have total privacy? What mm. kind of level of um, your, like, personal information do you really not, need, like, need to be kept to yourself? Um, and is it as scary as it, as it sounds to have companies, you know, mm. knowing your name your your age or like whatever um <coughs> i also don't think that we do a very good job of explaining what it will go towards either mm-hmm. though so mm-hmm. people think of their personal data we talk about personal data but as natalie says it is impossible through research to fix problems around genomics without mm-hmm. it being huge data sets that are across all sorts of different populations and if someone again if someone was to say your data is going towards this that would be a really positive Exactly. Message. And when it comes to big research like that, you're just a tiny little data point. Yeah. You're not... No one cares about you as an individual. They care about the end goal of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and that's how we get statistics. Wow, another word I can't <laughs> really get out today. Um, you know, that's how we get um, research in general. Mm. Um, and I think that's what people forget. Uh, but what was also interesting is... is it's, again, that... that a battle between academia and health and tech and Natalie was saying that there's not a lot of trust between between them and 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 like so I'm just I'm just curious of you know there is a shift uh from both sides mm. or from all sides but where is that compromise going to come you know who's going to have to kind of do the most shifting yeah and understand each other like she says you know uh, academia is often knowledge for knowledge sake but that doesn't build trust mm. And trust is the byword every single time. And you kind of get the impression that you've got a number of different industries there working together who might inherently distrust each other. Mm-hmm. Academia has a fairly dim view of people outside of academia. Academics who go into enterprise are viewed by other academics as people who have failed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if that's the environment and trust is the central foundation of progress, well... We've got, we got to pull our sucks up on that one. Yeah, exactly. And also, if there's such a lack of trust um, and confidence between the companies, it's like, how can you expect people to trust to trust that? <laughs> um, you're acting people, asking people to put uh, their trust in something that um, doesn't even contain trust mm. itself. So I think that's definitely something that, that needs to shift quickly if we're going to get the best benefit out of um, data usage for healthcare. Yeah. Look, Natalie, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Really interesting uh, topic of conversation uh, and some really valuable points. Um, So thank you for being a guest. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have one piece of quick tech news. 
Once a month, Tech Talks opens The Tuck Shop, a YouTube tech news roundup, which is kindly carried by Disruptive Live. Disruptive Live is the UK's first and only 24-7 TV channel for the technology industry. Stay up to date with all the latest industry news by following our regular talk shows broadcast live across the Disruptive Live website and social media channels. You can also catch Disruptive Live at some of the largest global technology events, broadcasting from London, Manchester, Singapore, Dubai, and many more. Welcome back to Tech Talks. A uh, bit of tech news then for your Friday to carry you into the weekend, literally carry you in some regards. Uh, Uber is now using your smartphone and your drivers to detect vehicle crashes. This is in The Verge. Um, I initially read that headline and thought, Uber's using my smartphone to detect crashes. Basically, Uber's looking at where my phone is and collating that data, that doesn't sound very good. Mm. But then actually, it goes on to talk about the fact that it's just the driver's phone. <laughs> Which wow. actually, I'm all for. And we often give big tech a bit of a kicking, especially you know mm. companies like Uber and Airbnb have come in for their fair amount of flack recently. Mm. But what this is talking about is that, I'll, I'll read a short extract. Um, if Uber verifies that there has been an accident, the rider will be prompted to call 911. If a car suddenly stops, if there's a sudden deceleration, it doesn't make any sense, basically. It starts to send signals to emergency services and so on to suggest that there might have been an accident. Mm. And given how important it is that medical attention arrives on the scene of a crash, I don't see how this is necessarily a bad thing at all. Okay, so I'm confused. <laughs> so at what point... So Uber is tracking drivers' phones yes, to... with a feature uh, called Ride Check. Ride Check, yep. and that um, indicates when there's been a crash. So it utilises the GPS, the, accelerator, the accelerometer, gyroscope, and other sensors inside a smartphone to detect trip irregularities, like a vehicle crash or an unexpected mm-hmm. long stop. After a year of piloting and refinement, RideCheck is now available in the US with other countries to follow soon. The system alerts both drivers and riders when some, something is out of the ordinary. A notification will pop up to ask if everything is okay, which leads to a list of possible answers, including the option to call the authorities at 911 or Uber's safety hotline, even though Uber had a safety hotline. Mm. Um, if Uber verifies that there has been an accident, the rider will be prompted to call 911. Uber's team of safety operators may also reach out to ensure the rider is safe when the feature is triggered. Okay, so it's just kind of assuming that drivers wouldn't call 911 if they had a crash. (laughs) Because isn't it, if they were in a crash, wouldn't they do that? I don't know. There is part of me that thinks the prompt to... If you're in a crash, maybe one of you is capable of getting your phone... I think I think that prompt there is probably not a bad thing. And also, no. um, whilst at the minute it's a push, push notification, there's obviously a team there that can reach out. Uh, and I think that's the key bit. The Uber's team of safety operators can reach out. Yeah. And they can get in touch with 911, uh, which is an interesting feature. Yeah, because what it'd be useful for uh, is if they were in a crash that... Um, kind of rendered them unconscious or kind of dazed the point of not being able to call 911 themselves, it would be useful if it, it could get to the point where the verification could be good enough that 
it could call it for the driver. Um, I, th- I think the interesting thing would be um, if you have a phone and there's some irregularity going on and there are other Ubers passing, mm. if it was to push a notification to other nearby drivers to say, please keep an eye out if you go past this report if you see an accident. Yeah. Because there's lots of Ubers very close in proximity to each other on the streets of London. Mm. I think the other thing that is is important is that if you've got data like this and it could say, you know what, a particular road in London is quite unsafe over a period mm. of time, you'll, you'll build up a, a heat map of where accidents and incidents are taking place yeah. and that can be passed on to local authorities, police, TfL, whatever, to make sure that some action can be taken to improve road safety. Yeah, very true. And it's just kind of increasing the time, uh, like decreasing the time um, to... Uh, flag it up I guess isn't yeah. it um, I mean Waze has similar features right yeah and what's what's that about unexpected long stops so is that like say if the driver like passes out or like has a stroke at the wheel or something yeah. like, no, honestly I, I'm not sure but I guess mm. it would be yeah that's kind of yeah because my, my uncle had a stroke while driving a truck he was a he was a uh, yeah he drove a truck and he managed to pull himself over to the side of the road um and he was just lucky enough that he managed to pull himself out of the side of the road before he had the stroke. Uh, but it's yeah, that would have been really useful in that in that situation. In that um, I just, so it's I just, definitely, yeah, it's definitely a good thing. I thought, you know what, we do kick big tech, and rightly a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah. Here's a story that actually I think is is quite a positive use of technology, but also saying go further, think about how it can integrate and and Mm. work with other services to provide real benefit. Definitely. And I think when we're attacking big tech, we need to be careful not to just like attack the company as a whole because it doesn't mean that every person that's working for Uber is is inherently no. doing bad or, I'd imagine or wanting bad. Like, percent of yeah. people. So I think we should be more careful yeah, to kind of attack mm. the people that are passing the the decisions or um or being you know, lazy and unresponsible yeah. in their building of technology. Exactly. That are actually um, the things that are giving it a bad name because there are definitely, ben- you know, Uber is so beneficial for like safety of getting people mm. home and like yeah. uh, being really regulated and, and being able to know where you're going and everything like that. So there yeah. we go. A bit of good news to go into the weekend. So if you do get an Uber uh, over the weekend, it's not available in the UK yet, but it, it might be soon and maybe you can. Use it as a topic of conversation with your driver, should you yeah. wish. God, we're always behind, aren't we, in the UK? Mm. It's always like, this is great new things out, you know, you can't have it yet. <laughs> we're, we're forward thinking when it comes to shooting yourself in your foot. Yeah. There we go. Okay, yeah. We can be good nice. at being bad. Very positive. Uh, right. <laughs> have a lovely weekend. Sean, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. And see you on Tuesday. Bye.